Okay, so I've just shared a little bit of a little bit of an insight into what the message is about today, but I want to pray again and um, just invite God to speak to us and um, yeah, trust that His Word will enter into our hearts today. Heavenly Father, thank you for Your Word. Thank you for every part of it, God. How good it is, Lord, to be able to just spend time with You in Your Word. I praise You for that. I pray that today, as we do that as we unpack different parts of your scripture and, and just uh, receive your promises and your truth, Lord, um, for us, I pray that it would be just what we need for today. I pray that we would be uh, blessed by, um, yeah, just the, the value of your word and, and that we'd be encouraged today where we need it. pray that we'd receive correction where we need it today, God, by your grace and by your mercy. I pray that we'd receive hope where we need it today, God. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. You know, uh, it's been 12 years since the Christian artist David Crowder. Um, this is going to make some people feel a little bit old. <laughs> it's been 12 years since David Crowder released the song, How He Loves Us. You know that song? Right, I thought if I was more prepared, I would have had the band probably try and play that one today, but you know, this is how it goes. So I'm going to read the first little part of that song. It says, He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great. Your affections are for me. He is jealous for me. It's talking about God. God is jealous for me. Jesus and his Holy Spirit is jealous for me. Today we're going to explore this idea of God's jealous love for his people. And it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. And it's, and it's one of those things where it's like, what? God's jealous? Isn't that like a bad thing to be jealous? But I... When you look at jealousy as an expression of love, this is a pretty cool picture. And so I hope that that's going to be able to be something that we can take home today. God's jealous love that he has for us. Now, um, normally when I think about, okay, we've obviously finished up Ecclesiastes. We've had a couple of, couple of Sundays of other people sharing the message. Usually I try and prepare and think, okay, we're going to go through this book now or go with this topic or whatever. And, um, and it hasn't been very easy for me to nail down what we're going to look at next. And so um, interestingly, I had a mentor once who said, if you don't know what to preach on, just share a testimony, <laughs> right? And so I'm going with a little bit of that advice because it's actually a bit of a personal testimony that's going to lead me or is leading me into where I feel God wants me to preach through in the Word next. And so that's what I'm going to share a little bit of the journey I've been on over the last couple of months to get us to where we are today. Every, every three months, Jade and I take a day out um, by ourselves to go and pray together and to pray for the church. And, um, and we also, uh, you know, go and see a professional supervisor who helps us um, with, with our lives and things that we're going through. And it's just an awesome time. But most of the day we spend in the Word and praying. And when I go on this day, I always just go with um, whatever the Scripture readings are for the day. Right, I've got a Bible reading plan that I follow. And um, whatever those chapters are, usually it's two Old Testament chapters, one New Testament chapter. And 
I opened up the, the readings for the day and admittedly I was a bit like, oh man, what am I going to get out of these chapters? It was, <laughs> which is a bit terrible. <laughs> but it was Zechariah chapters 7 and 8. And um, does anyone know where Zechariah is? Gordon knows, Damien knows, some of us. It's, it's a minor prophet, right? So it's kind of, it's one of those last books of the Old Testament. And um, anyway, I, I sort of thought, oh, well, I, the, my attitude is that I trust that these are, the, these are the passages God wants me to reflect on for the day. And so I start reading through chapter 7, um, start reading through chapter 8. And um, as I start reading, I, I, I feel God's impressing upon me that these are, the, these are the chapters he wanted to speak to me through. And, and, and he wanted to bring an encouragement to us as a church. And he encouraged me as a pastor um, through these the, the, the words in this chapter. And so over the last couple of months, I've been thinking, gee, God, how am I going to communicate this with the leaders in the church, with the board and with the church as well? And um, if you thought a, a series on Ecclesiastes was a bit like, oh man, really? We're going to do that? Then um, we're actually going <laughs> to do something maybe even more unusual. And that's, we're going to preach through Zechariah using chapter eight as a bit of a guide. Right, And so <laughs> that may seem a bit odd, but I just think there's so many powerful promises in God's Word. Every part of it's valuable, and there's so much awesome stuff in it. And um, as, I've, as I've started to study this passage, as God's spoken to me through it, um, I've found there's 10 promises in chapter 8 of Zechariah. There's 10 promises that God has for, his, for the remnant of his people. Right Now, who's the remnant? Right? Uh, <laughs> I always, the other struggle I have when I'm figuring out what should I preach and what should I say is I feel like there's a balance between teaching and preaching that needs to happen because some of us are like, admittedly never read Zechariah, right? Some of us. (laughs) Others of us are like, oh yeah, I kind of know where that fits, but it's always so helpful to get a grasp on where does this fit in the the major story of the Old Testament and and the Bible itself and, and biblical history. And so... In order to help us get a grip on this, as we look at it over the coming couple of months, I want to show us an eight-minute video today, and it's from the Bible Project. Who's heard of the Bible Project? Fantastic. I'm so glad lots of hands went up. I want to encourage you to keep using that as a resource in your own um, devotions and study. It's actually awesome. You can just even go onto YouTube. I, I often, if, I, if I'm as I did when I went to Zechariah and thought, gee, God's speaking to me about this. I should get a better grasp on it. I just went to YouTube, Zechariah um, Bible Project, and this video came up. It's an overview of the whole book. And they actually do this for every book of the Bible. They've got all sorts of videos on different themes. And I guess for me as a pastor, I want to equip you and encourage you to say, this is awesome stuff, a great resource. There's short videos. There's, there's podcasts to listen to. There's uh, blogs to read on their website. Just get amongst it because it's awesome. But we're gonna we're gonna watch one today, just for eight minutes, and then I'm gonna get up and finish off this idea of God's jealous love. But the plan is that we're gonna get a picture of what is what is Zechariah. Where's he coming from? So hope this uh, goes all good. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. 
Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions, and that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up, is now the time for the Messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. 
And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's Spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah, who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out, saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders, who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds, and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden, and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation, and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery, and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat, orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. There you have it. Just as easy as that. So, (laughs) 
as you can see, that's why I wanted to show the video was because that, that um, is just, it's just a lot in the book. It's, it's hard for me to just explain an overview of the, the book, but I want to encourage you that as you read through the Bible, and I, and I hope that you're reading with some sort of a plan that would, would get you across a book that's difficult to understand and not just your favorite New Testament book or, you know, a parable out of the Gospels. But that's all, that's all well and good, but it's great to come across these books and it's great to have a tool like this that can help us understand. Yeah, and so that's the purpose of what I'm trying to um, show you out of that. So um, all that to say, the context of chapter 8, right, with these 10 promises is that there's this faithful remnant of God's people, these few people. I think, I think out of the very large nation that Israel was, there was about 50,000 that returned from Babylon into Jerusalem uh, where they'd been living in exile for 70 years. They're now back um, where God always wanted his people to be, right, in Mount Zion on, in Jerusalem. And God starts outlining how he's going to start repairing and rebuilding them, not just rebuilding the temple and the city, but, but repairing them spiritually, re- renewing the covenant relationship that he has with them, right? And so there's some pretty awesome things that he says to Zechariah, and Zechariah's trying to pass this message on to the people. And every time it, um, a, a new promise or a, a new facet of that comes up, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. This is what the Lord Almighty says, right? And so then follows the promise for the remnant. And so I think God was impressing upon me that we as a church are a bit like a faithful remnant, right? We are, um, you know, through this small group of people, God desires to have relationship. He desires to build the kingdom. He, does, he, he desires for us to um, know that he is our almighty God, that we can um, be blessed through him and have, um, you know, awesome things happening. And what I think is important about these promises and, and being encouraged by them is that it, it, dis, it, it disarms the discouragement we can often feel as, um, you know, just a small community of believers, right? And some of us have been here faithfully for years and years serving, keep showing up, keep committing, you know, um, keep getting in the playing field, keep being part of the team, and that's so good. Um, but it's easy, I know, to get discouraged, when things go wrong or things don't go the way we thought they were going to go. And I want to say to you that these promises, I hope, disarm some of that discouragement for you, right? Because um, this is, the, the, the remnant, uh, um, you know, just, they have a special place in God's heart. And I think we're going to see some of that. And so the other thing about um, the remnant is that... Um, you know, there's this sense in which they had to start looking forward to the new kingdom to be able to rebuild as well. Yeah, if they kept looking back and kept looking back to Babylon where they'd started to get comfortable or, you know, and this theme goes on throughout the whole Old Testament. God brings his people out of Egypt. If they kept looking back, you know, Egypt started to look pretty good, but he had a better place for them. And so I think for us as a church, that's an encouragement as well as we are um, trying to build ourselves up spiritually, build ourselves up on following Jesus. Um, part of that building up is, is looking forward to God's promises, you know, reminding ourselves of the good things he has for us, the things he desires to do in our hearts and our lives. Because if we keep looking back, it's kind of like driving a car, but all you see is the rear view mirror. You're going to crash. 
right? The rear view mirror is helpful, but, and it's helpful to look back and reflect from time to time. I think my driving instructor said every seven seconds, you know, you should glance at your, at your mirror, right? But if you, if you do it any longer, it's kind of like you may as well be looking behind yourself, yeah? And so it's not a good plan. You always got to be looking forward, taking in everything that's ahead of us. And so that's a little bit of what Paul says, striving for what's ahead, you know, pressing on toward the goal. That's what I believe God's heart is for us as a church. And so with all of that, let's quickly cover this first, um, first promise to God's people. It's Zechariah chapter 8. You can open up there and we're, we're only going to read verse 2, <laughs> okay, because that's all, all, all there is um, in the first promise, right? It says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. And as I like to do, I want to read it in a few different translations. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. I have longed to help Jerusalem because of my deep love for her people, a love which has made me angry with her enemies. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, demanding what is rightfully and uniquely mine. And I am jealous for her with great wrath against her enemies. So God is jealous for Zion. Whenever you see Zion or Jerusalem um, mentioned, it, God's not just zealous for that place, but for the people, his people who, who dwelt there, right? And particularly it's representative of his covenant people, right? So God is jealous for his people that he's in relationship with, right? God's using this language of jealousy as an expression of his love for his people. Now, God's referred to himself as a jealous God before, um, sorry, I'm just struggling to get my notes in the right order here. Here we go. He's used this idea of being a jealous God before when he um, established his relationship with his people in the first place. It's, it's in the second commandment passage out of Exodus 20, starting at verse 4. He says, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The, the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands, right? So the idea of God's jealousy for his people relates to the covenant relationship he's established with his people. His love for them is like that deep love of a marriage, right? God will not put up with rivalry or unfaithfulness, right? He's like, my love for you is so great. I can't stand it when my people, you know, go off and follow something else or someone else. Right, if something seems to be gathering the attention of his people like an idol or other gods, God burns with jealousy. And you see that narrative through the Old Testament, right, all the way through. If his people are being unfaithful, committing themselves to other idols, something other than himself, he burns with jealousy. And, and it's, it's that jealous love that makes him do that. When God entered into relationship with his people, he was kind of like claiming exclusive rights 
He's like, you are mine. No one else is allowed to have you. That's sort of the way a little kid might grab a hold of their little favourite teddy, you know? (laughs) And it's like, this is mine. You can't have it. And this is the love that God had for his people in, in, in the old covenant relationship. And when they focus their love onto something else, his jealous love for them would burn. He loved them such that it pained him to see them love something or someone else. And so it's that deep, jealous love that God has for his people that actually, as I've said, shapes that whole narrative of the Old Testament. Judgment came upon God's people when their hearts drifted to other gods or idols, didn't it? Right? Whenever they got distracted from him, weren't weren't obeying the, the covenant, that's when his jealous love acted out in judgment. Right? He's saying, that's not what I thought this was going to be. That's not the relationship we ended into. Judgment came upon other nations when they threatened God's people as well, right? And he was acting, sometimes we think God's judgment is like, man, he's just up there just, you know, sending lightning bolts and all of this, but it's all tied back to this jealous love he has for his, for his covenant relationship, right, with the people he's in relationship with. God's blessing came upon his people in all sorts of ways and even his blessings, the material blessings he gave them, the place he gave them, the inheritance he gives them, it's all out of this jealous love that he has, this desire to be connected to them. So what does this have to do with us, right? Obviously, we're not in an old covenant relationship anymore, right? We're not uh, receiving judgment every time we step out of line. That's not how God deals with his people anymore. How do we carry this promise of God's jealous love into the relationship that we have now through Jesus Right, and I believe that the first thing we can do is recognise that the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the good news about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, I think is that same jealous love for all people. Right, that same jealous love. This is the motivation God had in his heart to, um, to send his son to die on the cross. He said, it means so much to me that I can be in relationship with you that I'll send my son I'll send myself in the form of my son to live and dwell on earth with you and I'll send him to the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? That something, someone who would be able to bring us into relationship with one another. And the beauty of that is it no longer rides on us, right? It no longer rides on whether we're faithful. It no longer rides on whether we're getting distracted or not. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. Isn't that an awesome thing? <laughs> God's jealous love organised this way for us to be in relationship with him because he so desperately wants to hold on to us. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, um, starting at verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. There it is. God's jealous love for us 
should be the thing that shapes our whole community, our relationships, uh, you know, our friendships, um, the, the, the way we treat other people that we're dealing with throughout the week. When we've been affected by this jealous love, this perfect love in Christ, that's, that ought to shape our love for others. Right now, it's one thing to say that. It's not easy to do that. And we need this, and, and I guess this is part of the journey that we're on. I don't have any super good tips because the, the further I get along, the more I realize this is a struggle for me, <laughs> right? To actually truly love the way God loves. In, um, in the book of James, it talks about, in chapter 4 there, it talks about this jealous love as well. It says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? So this is kind of like James is sort of bringing up that Old Testament idea where when you, when you become friends with the things that are happening in the world, the idols and gods would be the Old Testament equivalent. Um, you're kind of creating enmity between yourself and God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He's kind of like saying, don't, don't you know? <laughs> it hurts God to see us go off the path that he wants us on. Right, because he's jealous for us to stay on the path. He's jealous for us to recognize the love that he has for us. So much so he actually puts his spirit inside of us. This is what the, the Passion Translation says. You have become spiritual adulterers who are having an affair, an unholy relationship with the world. Don't you know that flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us? I want to finish with that thought of um, God's jealous love. The spirit that he's put inside of us actually has that jealous love for us to stay on the, on the path. And I guess... Um, this is how we get, um, you know, this is how God, uh, God's spirit works in our lives, transforming us, keeping us on the path. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of, there's a word I'm trying to think of. It's not going to come to me. No, not condemning us, but what's the word? Does anyone know? It's kind of like not condemnation. It's not correction. It's another word like that. Anyway, that's all right. It's not meant to be. What was it? Rebuke, confirm, mm, so close. That's okay. It might come to me later. <laughs> um, guidance. Yeah, these are all good words. Maybe these are better. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is God is trying to shape our life by his spirit inside of us who loves us with this jealous love. Convict, that's the one. Thanks, V. Yes. Thank you. He brings conviction by that same spirit, right? He brings conviction by that same spirit that lives inside of us, that, that has that jealous love for us. And when you feel that conviction, know that it's coming from a God who's, who's just madly in love with you.
right? That it's, this is why we experience that. Isn't, that. isn't that an awesome thing? And whenever we're convicted, whenever we recognize sin in our life, where do we go? We go back to the cross and we thank him for his love for us, shown to us on the cross, right? That can transform our sin through Jesus Christ's blood shed for us. Isn't that cool? Okay, I think we're going to finish there. And, um, and we ought to think of some ways we can respond today. Some of us um, might just be thinking, wow, isn't this awesome? God loves me. And I didn't realize how much he loved me with that jealous love. And maybe some of us might just today like to say, man, I, I just want to receive that jealous love for myself. I, I want to experience it and I want to know it. And, and um, if that's you, that's, a, that's the best place to start. Others of us might be um, maybe feeling a bit convicted <laughs> over, um, you know, uh, some things that we've been doing that we know aren't what God wants for us. You know, it, it conflicts with the jealous love that he has for us. It conflicts with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And maybe there's some things we've been doing where we need to say, you know what, God, I just want to give that to you. I need your transformation in my heart and in my mind. I need you to purify me today. Maybe that's a way to respond. The final way would be, God, how can I love others in this same way? Maybe there's someone who you know needs love in your life, in your family, friendships, at work, wherever it be. You say, God, I need you to help me to love this person in this same way because at the moment it's very difficult. <laughs> you know, maybe that might be a good way to respond. So let's pray together and then we'll sing a song and then, uh, yeah, I want to invite you to respond. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your jealous love for us. Isn't that just so powerful, God? That you just, uh, the whole narrative of your word is just, seeking out deep relationship with your people. I pray that you'd help us to respond in the way you know we need to. I pray that you bring conviction to our hearts today, God. I pray that um, you'd help us to love others in this same way, God. I pray that you'd free us from the from, from the places where we've made friendship with the world in a sense, where we've turned our eyes off of you onto idols and other things that are consuming our time. I pray that you'd free us from those things, God. We know that it's only by your grace that that can be done. We know that it's only by the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that there's any power for that to happen. And so we ask you and we, and we, and we plead with you because of your jealous love for us, help us to be pure Help us to follow you and, and, and live the, the path that you call us to live. Help us to be, continue to be a faithful remnant, Lord, for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.